0: As I was reading this, I thought, I don't know if any of you have been ever to an honest-to-goodness, knock-down, drag-out food fight, you know, the the kind they show in the movies, but I have. It was in 1969 in Owen Redfield Hall, dining hall at Idaho State University, and nobody ever knows how these things really get started, and if they did know, they're not going to admit it. You know how that is. But all of a sudden, mashed potatoes are flying all over the place. And uh, most sane people at that point, what, run for the doors. They get out of there. Some of the rest of us who think we have something to prove to these big football players, whom we call jocks, you know, and that's what they call them on a comp, uh, college campus, we have something to prove. They outweigh us 10 to 1, but we can sling mashed potatoes with the best of them, Right? And when things started settling down, only a few of us brave warriors of justice were left in the dining hall. And the Saga food manager went and locked both the doors, going out to both wings. And he turned the brave warriors into janitors to clean the place up. And it makes you wonder if the food fights are really worth fighting at that point. Now, there was something that was important that year because that was the very first year in the history of all time that Idaho State University beat the University of Idaho in football. And so the football team went on to beat the U of I. The rest of us just went on. <laughs> you know that's good. So as I was studying God's work that, words this last week, I discovered something that I really hadn't seen before or paid much attention to. In the New Testament... The subject of food fights fills page after page, verse after verse. The fight over food. You don't need to turn to it at this point, but it's the subject of Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. When the apostle Paul was pitted against the apostle Peter and against, all of all people, Barnabas as well. Paul says that he opposed Peter to his face. Who over who was going to eat with whom? You see, when Peter came to Antioch, he would sit at the table with the Gentile Christians, the pagans who had come to Jesus Christ, his fellow believers, and he probably had a ham sandwich or whatever with them as they put it on the table and they enjoyed the fellowship. And then some certain men from Jerusalem who would have been Jewish, whether they were actually Christian or not, we wonder, but these guys came to, to Antioch and Peter began to withdraw from the Gentiles and hold himself aloof. And it says he was fearing the party of the circumcision. And so these people had come up from Jerusalem. They, believed, they were one of those that believed you had to be circumcised. You had to keep the law. You had to keep the dietary laws in order to be a real, real Christian. And so it was, they were believing it was a requirement for the, 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 the Christian life. And, and Peter withdrew. We don't know why he did that. But his Peter's actions, the Apostle Peter's actions of all people, threatened to divide the body of Christ further. Are you going to eat with the Gentile Christians? Or are you going to sit over there with the Jewish Christians? And then all of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is about the conflict and division in the church over meat sacrificed to idols. In pagan-dominated communities like Corinth, the best cuts of meat were in the marketplaces because they would... Take the meat and give it to the, the priest of their temple, and they would sacrifice, burn part of it, and then the priest would probably eat part of it, and then then they would take it to the marketplace to be sold. And uh, so these were the best cuts of meat around. And so they'd put it in the marketplace, and uh, it'd been offered to idols. Do you eat it or not eat it? And what do you do if you're offending your brother? And then Paul picks up the topic of meat sacrificed to idols again in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians and spends almost the entire chapter. On that, And then in chapter 11, Paul takes the Corinthians to task over the Lord's Supper itself. It was called in those days the agape feast or the love feast. The Christians would gather together and they would share a full meal together, the agape feast. And then they would celebrate and share in the Lord's Supper together. And the factions and divisions in the church in Corinth were so pronounced that Paul said, When you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Implying, I don't know what you guys are eating, but this is, this is not it. The Corinthians had turned the Lord's Supper into an event where some went, went home hungry because they didn't have any food to bring and nobody shared with them. And others went home drunk. The Christian Corinthian church was so full of divisions and factions and much of it had to do with a food fight. Then today when we come to Romans chapter 14 food fights or fighting over food as it were consume much of the discussion Romans chapter 14 verse 1 all the way to chapter 15 verse 13 and in Paul's practical section where he deals with spiritual gifts and he deals with all kinds of things how we live the Christian life and how we get along with one another this is the largest section in Romans and it has to do with food and drink. And so God's word is going to have something to say for several sermons about food fights over the the next several weeks. But it's really not just about food. Is it? It's about whatever opinion it is that threatens to divide the Church of Jesus Christ. It's what threatens to destroy the unity, destroy the harmony and the testimony of the body of Christ. It's a question of how do we handle Are honest-to-goodness differences of opinion? How do we handle our differences so the gospel might be fully preached? How do we handle our differences so that God is glorified with one voice? How do we handle our differences so that we accept one another just as Christ has also accepted us? How do we handle our differences so the work of God is not torn down? How do we handle our differences so that we experience happiness? You probably never thought of that one. I I hadn't until I took a good look at uh, verse 22 of Romans chapter 14. Happy is the man who does not condemn himself in what he approves, or blessed, or happiness in what he approves, that is, in what he eats and does not eat or drink. Happy, It's it's a source of blessedness. Of course, our differences are many, and I'm not going to take time to go through all of them. You know, they're probably still running in your mind. But as as Christians, I'm talking about the differences in our country, not in in our local church right here. But as Christians, we come from all kinds of different backgrounds, don't we? Religiously, economically, educationally, racially, culturally. You know, when we moved to Texas, I honestly felt like I was living in a foreign country. It was so different from Idaho, and yet Texas and Idaho are probably more alike than any other two states in the Union. But uh, we come from all different kinds of places and all kinds of different backgrounds because of what we've experienced growing up and in life. We react differently. How we think is differently. We're all different because we're in different phases of our spiritual maturity and our growth in the Lord, in our understanding of God's word. If, if you were raised in the church, you're going to have a different kind of background, different experiences if you weren't raised in the church. And oftentimes it depends on which church you did go to as a kid. And now we live in a time where Satan is exploiting our differences in our country, in our churches, whether it's our opinions on COVID-19 and what needs to be done and what people need to do or not be doing, or the polarization of, even among Christians uh, in politics and racial issues, or what people think of the protests and the riots and the things that have spread across our nation? How do we get along in spite of our differences? And how do we keep the issues that are threatening to tear up our country from tearing up our churches and tearing up the body of Christ? Well, that's why we turn to Romans chapter 14, verse 1. What a timely time to, to come to this 14th, this 14th chapter of Romans. Paul writes in the first verse of Romans chapter 14, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So, so what does it mean to be weak in faith? And notice first of all here, and we're going to take this very simply and very systematically for a while here. Notice first of all that those who are weak in faith that person does not eat meat or drink wine. We see that in, in verse 2. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So here the, the, the issue is meat. But if you look at verse 21 of this 14th chapter, then we see that wine is added to the list. It is, not, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So Paul is saying here to the strong in faith in verse 21, there are times when you're going to deny yourself meat and wine for the sake of the weak, who don't eat meat or wine, or don't do anything that would cause a fellow believer to stumble. So the first thing that we see very basically here about the weak and the strong, the weak avoid, at least in Rome, the weak avoid meat and wine, and the strong are free to eat and drink anything. But before we go deeper into all of that, and why the weak don't eat meat or drink wine, we need to look closely at, at verse 6 here in the 14th chapter. This is crucial to our understanding of both the weak and the strong, the weak in faith and the strong in faith. In verse 6, Paul is talking specifically in the context of which day of the week people worship. Are you going to worship on the Sabbath, which we know is, is Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath is is Saturday. Or are you going to worship on Sunday, which is the Lord's day? Or are you going to worship on one of the other days? Listen to what Paul says here in verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. He serves God, he gives thanks to God, he does it for the Lord. So the one who is weak in faith, who eats not, is still acting from faith. Can you see that? He's not acting from no faith, he's acting from weak faith. But it's still faith, because it's for the Lord, it's in honor of the Lord. He does not eat, and he gives thanks to God for that. And so, in other words, he's acting from a God-centered, God-exalting frame of heart. The heart is overflowing with thanks to God. This is not a person who is resentful and thinks, you know, I don't get to eat meat, and I don't get to drink wine, and I don't get to do this, that, or the other thing. These are not Christians in Rome living a legalistic lifestyle of dutiful obedience to a bunch of rules bunch of rules that dampens their spirit and hampers their life in Christ. That's not these guys, not at all. This is a believer who is, a th- who is thankful to God and exalts in his or horror life in Christ. In other words, those who are weak in faith are seeking to please the Lord. These weak brothers are not legalists. And by that I mean that the weak brothers' abstinence from meat and wine is not because he believes that's the way he gets saved or that's the way he gets justified. It's that's the way that he sir, or he gains his acceptance before God or makes points with God in any regard whatsoever. He's not abstaining from meat and wine because he's trying to earn his salvation or gain acceptance with God. He's not abstaining from meat and wine because he was one of the they're one of the Judaizers who are teaching a false gospel of circumcision and law keeping. That's not these people. Apparently, the situation was somewhat different in Rome than it was in Corinth. In Corinth, the food, sacri- the food fight centered on meat sacrificed to idols. Are you going to eat it or not eat it? And then, if you're serving it and somebody says, Well, is this meat sacrificed to idols? And they say, No, well, yes, or whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. But here in Rome, Paul doesn't mention idols at all. It's not even part of the conversation. It's simply an abstention from eating meat, all meat. Now, why would someone in Rome, why would a Christian in Rome abstain from eating meat at all? It probably included meat sacrificed to idols, but it was more than that. More than likely, the weak believer in Rome who did not eat meat had been accustomed to a kosher diet before coming to Christ. They were raised in Judaism and all the dietary laws and, and everything concerning laws of days and uh, the diet laws. And so they would not have gone to the public meat market to begin with. And, and they just grew up with, what, you know, just when they became Christians, they just kept eating what they ate, you know, and they didn't know any different. They would, they would have gotten all their meat from the kosher Jewish markets. You might remember, we've talked about this before. There was a time where Claudius, the emperor, kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Remember, we've talked about that? Because of an, a supposed insurrectionist by the name of Crestus, we know as, as Christ. And, and so Claudius figured that all the insurrection going on was the, the Christians' fault or was the Jews' fault because some of them were following this guy by the name of Crestus. Well, they were following Christ. Uh, And so all the Jews got kicked out of Rome. And so the Jews blamed their expulsion from Rome on the Christians. And so when the Jews were allowed to return to Rome under Nero, the Jews didn't want anything to do with any Christians. They didn't want anything to do with Jewish Christians. And so the Jewish Christians were ostracized from the Jewish community, including from the kosher Jewish markets. So they couldn't go and buy the kosher meat like they they, they used to. And they're not going to go to the pagan marketplace and, and buy meat. And so the only place the Christian Jews could actually go and buy meat was the pagan market. And they're not going to go there. It was just too much of a stretch for the faith of a believer who had eaten kosher food and been happy with it all their lives. Quite frankly... And it's not a a straight one-for-one connection here, but it's very similar, the same way that you or I would feel going to one of the wet markets in Wuhan, China. You know, nothing to do with coronavirus, you know, because whether it came from a bat or whatever, the Spanish flu came from a duck intact in in Kansas. Did you realize that? That's where the Spanish flu originated. It was from a duck in Kansas. So so putting away all of that stuff... If you visited China, would you go to one of those wet markets where there was live animals and there was food and there was animals that had just been slaughtered and they just throw stuff out on the on the, the ground and those kind of things and you know, I don't think I'd be considered a weak Christian and be weak in faith by saying I'm not going to eat that bat. Okay? <laughs> you know, so so it has, you know, because so, Paul said all things are lawful, but all things are not profitable. And so here, those people who were weak in faith, they hadn't come to fully understand all of that yet. So Paul has absolutely no rebuke. There's no rebuke here. There's no condemnation for those abstaining in Rome. If these abstainers of meat and wine in Rome had been legalistic Judaizers who said, you've got to keep the kosher dietary laws and you've got to be circumcised, do all those kind of things to really be a Christian, the rebuke that Paul gave would have been really, really severe. And I know that because that's the rebuke that he gave to the Galatians. If you go over to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, where these people had gone to the churches in Galatians and said, you got to keep the law, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to do this, that, and the other thing. And, and, and Paul really says, hey, that's another gospel. And, and so he said to the Galatians, chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching you to a, a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be Accursed. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, as the Galatian Christians were slipping into this different gospel, another Jesus, a different gospel, a gospel of work salvation, a gospel of of keeping the law, and they were sliding back into that. He says in chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing from faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's a strong rebuke. And, and so in Rome, these are not Christians who are trying to now be perfected by the flesh even though they were saved by the Spirit. We are to live by the Spirit the same way we're saved by the Spirit. In Rome, these are new believers or, or weak of faith believers, but they still believed it was the Spirit of God that was bringing uh, renewal and bringing the life of Christ into them. And so that's, they're weak in faith, but they're not wrong in faith. And if they had been wrong in faith, they would have had the severe rebuke that Paul gave to the Galatians. So those who abstained from meat and drink in Rome, they were well-intentioned, they were wrong, and they were weak. But they were men and women who loved the Lord and their desire to please him. They thought it was worse to not eat meat than in some way offend God. Another thing we need to understand about those weak in faith that Paul, here in Romans, he does not accuse them of any sin. The Galatians were accused of a sin because they were threatened to, it was threatening to follow a different Jesus, another gospel. The practices of the weak are faith-driven practices. It's not sin, but it is God exalting behavior. And we know that from verse 23 of Romans chapter 14, the twenty-third verse. The practice of the weak are faith-driven practices. Verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Turn that around. If it is from faith, it is what? Not sin. If it's from faith, it's not sin. They were abstaining in faith, and so it was not sin. Paul does not accuse the weak of faith of sinning. They are acting from faith, it is weak faith, but faith that is God-centered and God-exalting, from a God-exalting heart. So with that understanding, let's see what Rome or what Paul is saying in verse 1 of Romans chapter 14 about accepting one another, accepting one another in the church. In spite of our differences of opinions and, and all the things that uh, could threaten to divide us like this, what does Paul have to say about it? Verse 1 of Romans chapter 14. He says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. We'll look at verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. First of all, he says, you accept the one, now God has accepted him. Look over at verse 7 of the 15th chapter. 15th chapter of Romans, verse 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So he says, accept the one who is weak in faith. God has accepted him. Now you accept one another, just as Christ has accepted us to the glory of God. The word translated accept can be translated received. Sometimes it's translated welcome. It literally means to take to oneself. To take to oneself. It's a personal and willing acceptance of another person. And we see this where Paul used the word to describe the gracious hospitality of the people at Malta. Actually, it was Luke that used the word because he was writing about Paul being shipwrecked. Remember that? Paul in 276 of his shipmates were shipwrecked on the island of Malta and they they finally made it to shore after swimming to shore some of them some of them finding pieces of board and wood and all those kind of things and coming to shore and they'd had only one meal in the last 14 days and 14 nights or something like that and they then they were on the sea tossed and they got to the, the shore and how did it go for them when they got to the shore at Malta We see that same word because the natives on Malta, uh, Luke writes, kindled a fire and received us all. Kindled a fire and accepted us all. That's the same word that's used here for acceptance. You know, they, they took them in. They warmed them. They welcomed them. They fed them. They made sure that they were okay. They graciously accepted us all and took them, took us to themselves. In fact, that's the same way that God accepts us. We come as shipwrecks, don't we? And God graciously and mercifully takes us to himself. And the great foundation of our forbearance of one another is that God has accepted us in Jesus Christ. Both the weak and the strong in faith in Christ, Christ died for them, they are accepted by God. And so he says, we should accept them as well, even with all our differences. But Paul says in verse 1 of Romans chapter 14, not for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinions. Don't accept them for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinions. The English Standard Version reads this way. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. Two Greek words are put together, quarrel and opinions or judgment, passing judgment and opinions, and these are two great words in the Greek, and I won't go into it. Sometimes they can be a positive thing, like uh, we are to be discerning, we are to be judging a false doctrine, but sometimes it's a negative thing. But here when you put these two together, probably the best way to translate it is, you know, do not have divisive questionings. Divisive questionings. You know, divisive questionings go like this. Why do you not eat meat when the Bible's so clear on the matter? You know. Why do you worship on Sunday when, or worship on Saturday when Sunday is the Lord's day? You know, it's this... This thing—it comes with a spirit of contention right off the bat that, that is, is questioning, and you feel like you're on the, the witness stand someplace. Why? 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 Explain that one to me. You feel like you're being interrogated. That's what divisive questionings do. And it's been my experience: the most difficult and divisive people are great at asking questions that have no good answers. You ever heard that? Are you naive or just plain stupid? <laughs> which you know, which 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 one is? It's got to be one or the other. You know, just answer me that one, would you? Are are you you know believing false doctrine, or are you so ill informed? You know, it, it comes out that way. You know, and there's people who, who think they have to you know just straighten people out, whether they're weak in faith or strong in faith. You know, got to get people straightened out. And what Paul is saying, don't build your relationships on divisive questions over non-essentials, whether one eats meat or not, or drinks wine or not, or worships on Sunday or worships on Saturday. And those are the ones that are mentioned here. As believers, we all have differences. And it's one thing if those differences have to do with the essential doctrines of salvation and justification and sanctification, who Jesus is, who God is, what Christ did for us on the cross. We are to be discerning in those matters. And we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And it's also another matter when it comes to sin. We should never tolerate sin in our own lives or in the life of of our church. We should never be accepting of sin. False doctrine is false doctrine. It needs to be confronted. Sin is sin, and it needs to be handled according to the scripture. But when it comes to the non-essentials, Paul gives very specific instructions to both the strong and the weak in faith. And he does that in verse 3. The one who eats not is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. The word translated contempt can be also translated despise. What a, what a strong word. Don't despise the one who doesn't eat meat. The word connotes a disdainful, condescending judgment. There seemed to be a spiritual majority in Rome that considered themselves to be superior in their judgments. That They know better than anyone else. You know, they've got it all figured out. They've got it all figured out better than everybody else. And everybody else needs to be straightened out. We're more enlightened. We've studied our Bibles more. You know, you can think of all kinds of things. We know our Bibles better than they do. We understand our liberty in Christ better than than they do. Yes, they probably are more enlightened, they probably, and they do know their Bibles better, and they probably understand their liberty in Christ while others don't, but don't despise or look upon in contempt those who, who don't. And so this is precisely what also Paul hits on and says to the weak in faith. He says the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. The weak responded in kind, considering them to be the ones who did not abuse their freedom in Christ. In fact, they were probably concerned that the liberty that was expressed by those who were strong in faith would lead to licentiousness in their lives, You know, where, where the strong believed that they had license to do whatever they wanted. And that would lead them to sin. Can you see? There's really kind of a godly concern on both sides here. You know, you guys are are weak in faith, and and I'm concerned about that. But we can turn it into despising them very easily. And and the weak in faith are saying, man, if he keeps going and doing the stuff he's doing, man, he's going to fall into some kind of sin over here. The strong in faith are concerned that the weak in faith were Judaizing legalists that were a threat to their own freedom in Christ, and so typically, the strong will be tempted to despise the weak, look down upon them with a patronizing air. You know, it's interesting that, that Paul doesn't, you know, I don't know anybody who is stronger in faith than Paul, you know, just from what he, what he wrote. But he doesn't do any of that in this chapter, you know, look down on people or criticize them or anything. But he approaches and accepts both the strong and the weak, but he does it with a gracious admonition. And typically, the weak will be tempted to judge the strong, because to the weak who are careful to abstain from things, the strong seem to be spiritually careless. So the weak are tempted to point out the careless behavior that may well be leading to a fall to a a spiritual destruction in the strong. In other words, you know, they're not legalists who are saying, you know, you can't do that or do this or the other thing because, you know... uh, that's the way you'd be right with Christ. But I think there's really a godly concern on both sides here where the weak are saying, if you are spiritually careless like that, you're going to drift away and do something. And I think the weak would say, you could be lost. Now, the strong in faith know what? They can never be lost. The weak in faith, they they haven't come to that yet. They don't know that. And so they're not only worried about their own salvation, they're worried about yours. (laughs) Is that right? It's good for them to worry, right? They're, they're wrong in the general premise, but I think it's really out of a godly concern for their own salvation and for the salvation of others. How can you live that way and do that? Because, you know, well, I'm weak. They're not going to put it that way. So Paul says negatively, don't despise each other and don't judge each other. And whatever you do, don't build your relationships on divisive questionings or quarrels over opinions. Rather, accept each other and build your lives, build your relationship together on something that is far greater than convictions about meat and wine and days and and whatever it is. So what is that? What is the far greater thing here? And that's where Paul picks it up in the second part of verse 3 of Romans chapter 14. Speaking to the weak, he's speaking about the weak. He says, the end of verse three, for God has accepted him. Then he says, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then we see that same idea as we read before in verse seven of the 15th chapter. Therefore, accept one another. Just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And so in these two and a half verses here, Paul gives us three great truths that we conclude with here. Three great truths that give us a firm and glorious foundation for accepting each other with our differences. First of all, God has accepted all of us in Christ. God has accepted all of us in Jesus Christ. And Paul makes it very clear that divine acceptance applies to both the strong and the weak. To the one who eats freely and to the one who does not. And the point is that if God himself does not make an issue of such things in his acceptance, what right do we as his children have to make an issue in our acceptance? If the strong and the weak have equal acceptance and fellowship with the Lord, it is sinful arrogance for those two kind of believers not to accept one another. The great foundation of our forbearance for one another is that God has accepted us in Jesus Christ. Both the weak and the strong believe in Christ who died for them. They are accepted by God in Christ, so we should accept them with, with all our differences on the non-essentials. The second great truth that gives a firm foundation for accepting each other is that God will be our judge. God will be our judge. Verse 4 again, why are you to judge the servant of another? In other words, it's up to the master to to be the judge. You know, I don't go down the street. I've wanted to, but I don't go down the street and I see those guys who are working on the street and standing around some of them. You know, Jan and I have joked about when we've traveled that we're going to, to make a whole new business that's going to make a lot of money. And we're gonna call it two guys watching temporary services. And so they just have to come to us. <laughs> you know, but but anyway, it's not my job, right? You know, if he's not fixing Washington Avenue right, I don't go over to a servant of another, especially when it's ITD. I don't want to mess with them anymore. <laughs> so so I don't go and tell their employee, okay, here's how you ought to be fixing this road. Am I tempted to do that? Yeah. Jen says, please don't talk about ITD or Boise uh, or Ada County Highway when we go to, when we go to Boise. <laughs> you know, don't even bring it up in the car. It's not my job. You know? Now, there are places where I can express you know, in those regards you know, some of my frustrations or whatever they are. But, but think about that in the Christian life. It's not my good job to go to you and tell you how you should be living for the Lord. God is the judge, you know each one of us one day will give an account to our master in heaven, not for our salvation, but we will stand before him for an account of the deeds we did for rewards you know does what you what do we, does that deserve a reward or not and that that's going to be a glorious time, you know, and so we don't have to worry about our salvation, we don't have to worry about salvation of others other than to pray for them, you know, but uh you know, and, and to witness to them. But believers in Jesus Christ, it's not our job to straighten them out. Each one of us has a master, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I like to tell, tell that to couples who want to get married and premarital counseling. You know, like I ask them, who's going to be the boss in your house? You know, that always raises a big discussion, (laughs) you know, because they don't know what to say. You know, does the pastor want this answer or that answer or the other? And I finally, you know, bail them out, as it were, in the discussion by saying, you know, the husband is the head of the home, but that's not the same as the boss. Because the only boss is boss Jesus. That's what the name Lord means. He is Lord, he is master, he is boss. That's the only master of your home and our job is to submit to his his lordship. Each one of us has a master, and that's Jesus Christ. We don't need to lift ourselves up as a judge of somebody else. Leave it to God. Talk about the freedom there. You know, I, I don't have to straighten you out. <laughs> I will preach, I will teach, I will love you, and those kind of things, but it's really up to the Holy Spirit to take his word and, and those kind of things. Leave it to God. A believer's personal assessment of another believer does not in the least affect their standing before God. Whatever I think of you and what you're doing, that doesn't affect your standing before God. So the first foundation of our accepting one another is that God has accepted us. And the second is that God will be our judge. That's not our job. And the third is God will make us stand in the last day. He will make us stand. Uh, Verse 4 again at the end. To his own master he stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here Paul goes beyond the statement that believers have a judge in heaven. He now says, every believer will be upheld in the judgment. Every every believer will stand erect and and accept it in the last day. The weakest believer you know will stand glorious and vindicated and loved and forgiven, dressed in the righteousness of Christ and accepted in the last day. In other words, I didn't save with the person with whom I differ. God did. I'm not the one who will keep him and perfect him for the day of Jesus Christ. God is. I'm not the man's Lord and judge God is. And I claim the freedom to let God be God. Right? <laughs> that is my freedom and that's the freedom of all of us. Let God be God. And trust Him that He is, will deal with our brother and sister on all these non-essential matters that we face. Only if God thinks He needs correcting. He'll deal with them in His way. My job is to love my brother and sister in Christ. My job is to do no harm have you ever seen we saw that in i think it was verse 10 of romans chapter 3 love does no harm to a neighbor therefore love is fulfillment of the law i need to accept him or her in christ and trust god to work in their lives